uh, such a beautiful chorus there between the uh, speeches that were given. I can remember watching that movie when it came out decades ago, being mesmerized, excuse me, uh, at the song that was sung. Oh, my Lord, 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 Lord. Oh, my Lord. I mean, just, I didn't know much about slavery. You learn some things in textbooks. We didn't have the blessing of YouTube and all the visuals that we had. But I remember watching that for the first time and being impacted. Being impacted by the seriousness of that moment, these freed slaves who are about to head into battle the next morning, many of them to give their lives, and yet there was just such this fluid recognition of God and of the Lord and their use of the word Lord. They didn't even realize it at the time, how significant it was. There's another African-American spiritual that uses the word Lord a lot that I actually learned as a kid. Many of us did if we grew up in church. Uh, you know the song, Do Lord, O oh Do Lord? Do Lord, oh do Lord, oh do remember me. Sing along. Do Lord, oh do Lord, oh do remember me. Do Lord, oh do Lord, oh do remember me. Way beyond the blue. Well, at this point in the sermon, I've accomplished something very important. I've gotten your attention. I have you asking a question. Why is Jeremy singing? Matt's up there saying, just go on sabbatical already. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but as I was preparing for this, and I chose uh, the glory clip to start, and I started looking into this, that's a term that we use a lot, Lord. It's a term that I've used a lot, growing up in church, being around churchy things. You know, it's a term that's in a lot of our songs, and it just makes its way into so much of our vernacular here within the church, and yet I don't necessarily know that we f understand even close to what it's supposed to mean. And that's important because Lord is one of the names that they use for Jesus. And this summer, we're in a series called Summer Son, Who is Jesus and Why Does It Matter?, and we are teaching on the different names Jesus was called to try to answer these two questions. Last week, Matt talked about Jesus as the Son of God. And today, I will be talking about Jesus as Lord. Now, what does the word Lord mean? There are a lot of uses of the word, and let's look at some of them. My first encounter with the word Lord, separate from church, was when I learned about the oppressive economic system in the Middle Ages called feudalism and world history. At that time, Europe and much of the world was ruled by kings, but kings needed help ruling their countries because their lands were so vast. So they set up and established lords, people who ruled under them, and these lords had almost an absolute type control over the region that they oversaw. The people who lived there, the regular people, uh, like you and I who would live on these lands, had to had to farm it, had to prepare for it, had to then give that food and pay a significant portion of what they earned back to the Lord. If the Lord went to battle, they had to go fight with them. If they didn't, they risked being kicked off their land, their families being starved, or worse. Notice the words absolute power, authority, control, very much associated with the title of feudal Lord. Then there's House of Lords. House of Lords is the upper house of parliament in the United Kingdom. Now, we have a Congress here in America with two bodies, the House of Representatives and the Senate. In the UK, they have a, 
uh, congressional body, and they have two houses. They have the House of Lords, known for the red seats, and they also have the House of Commons, which is known for its green seats. The House of Lords are of the higher-ranking people, the nobility. In World War II, there was a famous lord who opposed Winston Churchill called Lord Halifax. It sounds lordly, Lord Halifax. And he was part of the House of Lords. Red is the color of royalty. Red is the color of status. Green is uh, earth tones, you know. Everybody, the everybody color. Now, maybe you're not familiar with these lords or these, uh, the history or the civics lesson that I'm giving this morning. But I bet you know these guys. These ten pesky lords that come around every Christmas. You know them as the ten lords of leaping. From the song, The Twelve Days of Christmas. Now, they are not at all helpful for my message today. They illustrate nothing, except give us a little comic relief before we proceed. Although I'm sure Jesus leaped from time to time, and if you say otherwise, I want to talk to you afterwards. Jesus was a leaper, I'm sure. Um, But other than that, we don't really encounter lords. We don't really know of lords all that much in our world today. Unless you're talking about the best trilogy ever made, Lord of the Rings, right? All right, now it's been 18 years, you guys got to know. I came at year eight, and I guess when the church started in the 2001-2002 range, Matt used a lot of Lord of the Rings clips, because it's a great movie series and there's a lot to learn from the movie. Now we bring this up as a nod back to our history and as a little joke uh, about what was But uh, Lord of the Rings is maybe the most prominent name in which Lord is used. You want to know the irony of it, though? You want to know who the Lord of the Rings is? The bad guy, Sauron. And he's only Lord for a short while until he loses the Ring of Power. So we don't even really learn what Lord means from this. We learn about some other great characters who helped win the day. Although I don't want to put any spoilers out there, sorry. But we still don't understand what this term Lord means. In addition to that, we live in a society, in a world where individual empowerment is on the rise. We don't live in a world like like there was centuries ago where you had vast territories that were ruled by individuals who exercised absolute power. Most leaders today, except for the the, uh, exceptional despots that are around, are elected by the people. And so this idea of someone outside of ourselves having control over us is a foreign concept. Last week, Matt talked about Jesus as the Son of God. And while that's a little complicated and complex because how can Jesus be the Son if he always existed, nonetheless, he is revealed to us in the Word as the Son. You and I, we all know a Son. We've interacted with many sons in our lifetime. We are familiar with the term. We know what it means. In fact, roughly half of us in this room are sons, right? So this is not an unfamiliar term when we think of son and we think about father and we have that relationship. That is something near to us. But lords, not so much. We hear the word, but we don't really get and understand the term. So at this point, let's move to the Bible and see what it has to say about lords and about Jesus as Lord. First, let's look at Jesus as Lord in the Old Testament. What? Wait, what, Jeremy? Jeremy? Are you about to teach us some heresy up there? Jesus isn't in the Old Testament. He was born at the beginning of the New Testament. Well, that's true. But the person of Jesus, the person, the Son, 
God the Son existed prior to the incarnation of Jesus. God is not a singular God that is just one individual personality. He is one God. He is one singular God, but the Bible reveals him to manifest himself in three distinct persons. Now, that's confusing. Here on earth, one plus one plus one equals three, not one, okay? So earthly math is never going to accomplish this. But heavenly math, somehow one plus one plus one equals one. And while we try to get it and understand it this side, we won't fully understand it until glory on the other side. This side of heaven, we have to take God's word. We have to, there's an act of faith and understanding as far as the Bible as it reveals to us. But the church at large generally accepts the idea of a triune God with a Father, Son, and a Spirit. Now, before creation began, these were three coexisting persons in one God that have always existed. They've always been relating and been together, and there is no one more important or greater than the other. However, when creation began, when the universe came into existence, when the earth began, when Adam and Eve began this creative process of, of people inhabiting the earth, God ordered himself in a way where there was God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. And then that was manifest fully when Jesus became a person, when Jesus was incarnated as a zygote in the womb of Mary. John 1 says that Jesus existed. We're going to talk more about this term uh, later on, but I just want to reference it. It says that Jesus is God. He was in the beginning, and he is or was with God. And so you have this idea, you have this pre-existing person before the incarnation of Jesus that was who Jesus was. I know it's a little confusing, but hopefully you're tracking with me on that. Now, this is important because God reveals himself at various times in the Old Testament, and we wonder, by and large, most of these revelations, 10 people, scholars, believe that this is the pre-human Jesus manifesting himself. There's several examples, one of which takes place in Exodus chapter 3. little history background here. Abraham has Isaac, Jacob. Jacob has 12 sons. Joseph of one is one of them. There's uh, hundreds of people and they moved to Egypt at the end of Genesis for safety and security from a famine. Jacob is a high-ranking official, and they're, in, they're set up. However, Jacob dies. That pharaoh dies. A new pharaoh comes. And over centuries, these foreigners now in a foreign land, Egypt, are subjugated and made slaves and remember very little. They know of here, but they know very little of what their forefathers knew when, Jake, when Joseph brought them to Egypt. There's about two million of them. We get to Exodus chapter 3, and God decides that these two million Israelite slaves, it's time to bring them out of Egypt. And so he encounters Moses on Mount Horeb as he's out there just shepherding his flocks and his herds. And all of a sudden, in the distance, he sees this bush that's burning. Now, this was not uh, completely foreign, the fact that a bush would be on fire, whether uh, the heat, the air, the dryness of the region, a bolt of light, it it wasn't completely impossible for a bush to burn. What was impossible was for a bush to keep burning. And this bush is burning, and it keeps burning, and Moses knows this, and he walks over. And if you've not read it, Exodus 3, uh, verses 1 through 12, is an amazing conversation between God and Moses. I recommend it for your uh, reading pleasure. But I'll summarize it. God wants to invite Moses into the process of liberating the slaves from Egypt back to the promised land that he had for them. And Moses doesn't want to do it. 
And so they begin this conversation where God asks Moses and he's got an excuse. And God asks Moses and he's got an excuse. And we pick up in verse 13 of this conversation. Exodus chapter 3, verse 13. Then Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? That's a good one. Burning bush is talking to you, tells you to do something. Ah, what if I go? What should I, what's the name of the fellow who's sending me there? And this is at the point where we can see a little bit of the incarnate, pre-incarnate son reveal himself. God says to Moses, I am who I am, is how it's been translated from Hebrew into English. Not a good, not a perfect translation. Um, we're going to talk about that here in a moment. And he said, say this to the people of Israel. I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel. The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. And thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. Well, what is this name? This I am who I am. This the Lord that it's referencing in this passage. Well, you know what? We don't really know. God reveals, gives his proper name to Moses in this moment, and the name was so sacred that the Israelites wouldn't repeat it. They wouldn't verbalize it. And they wouldn't write it down in its totality. They left out the vowels, and they gave us four consonants, a Y, an H, a W, and H sounding in the Hebrew. And so we're left today with the word that you've heard probably, Yahweh or Yahweh, if you say it uh, in a Hebrew tone, which I probably just butchered, so my apologies, uh, if you know better. But nobody really knows what the name means. We've just guessed at it. For thousands of years, we've guessed because they refused to restate it, and they refused to record it in its entirety because God was so sacred. That name was so sacred. And that name is Lord. That's what Lord is. Yahweh is the ultimate word for Lord. It's the truest definition. It's a proper name. It means, it's like Peter or John, but for God, it means always existing, self-existing, creator of all, non-created one, above other. I mean, it's this, it's this name full of the infinite presence of God, as infinite as God himself is. All of our English uses and other human uses of the word Lord fall short of what it means because every Lord on earth ultimately derives his breath and life from Yahweh. And so they truly aren't Lord as much as they might think they are Lord. There is no beginning with Yahweh. There is no end. Yahweh always has been, always will be. This is why it's hard for us to understand the scope of what Lord really means because this is, in its essence, the best description of what Lord is supposed to be. Now, I encounter people who read, have read the New Testament, and they get into a conversation about Jesus, and they, Jesus never talked about being Lord. Jesus never talked about being God, and he never, he never actually said that. And in the English translation, though, Jesus never said, I am blank. But in John chapter 8, he's being pushed pretty hard by the corrupt religious leaders of the day. They're harassing him. They're accusing him of his uh, miracles being the work of the devil, which is the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit when you attribute the work of the Holy Spirit to 
uh, demonic forces. They're telling him that just, they're, they're just berating him. And Jesus justifiably is getting fed up. And he gets to this point, and this is what he says in John 8, 58, in response to them. He says this. Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, and then he says the word, Yahweh. And it, it blows their mind. It scandalizes them. So much so if you read verse 59, they want to pick up stones to stone him for the, even using the word and suggesting that he is that himself, is that person. Jesus gets away, obviously. Yahweh, Lord, is something that we, we don't understand and that we need to recognize we don't understand and we need to be thoughtful and humble like, okay, God, help me understand what it means that you are supremely authoritative, sovereign, in control of all things and I belong to you. It's a hard concept for us. Instead of Yahweh, they used a, a different term in Hebrew called Adon or Adonai, which is the plural form, which was the more common term used for Lord or Master. It means ownership and uh, absolute control in the Hebrew it's not a divine title, but rather, rather, as I said, a master over slaves, a king over subjects, but Adonai is the most common use for Lord in the Old Testament. There's several other words that pop up, but that's the primary one that you're going to find in the Old Testament. Jews would use this instead of Yahweh out of reverence, as I said. And so where Yahweh was, they would stop and they would say Adonai, even though it said Yahweh without the vowels on the scripture that they were reading. Still, a strong and powerful phrasing, title, but nothing close to Yahweh. As we move into the New Testament period, Hebrew is no longer used. Greek covers the land as the, the language trade of the day. And Jesus comes on the scene. And Jesus is Lord. And the New Testament is written in Greek, different than the Hebrew. Now, it's hard to accept Jesus as Lord, as I stated earlier, because he didn't seem very lordly. How can a, the Yahweh at one time have been a zygote in the womb of Mary, and then in an embryonic human form for nine months before being birthed as an infant child? That being, in its humanity and its vulnerability, was 100% divine, God the Son, from the moment of conception. Not only that, he was born in Bethlehem, but quickly thereafter, they moved to Nazareth. And Nazareth is this backwater town, Hickville, if you will. And when the rulers of the day saw Jesus, though he was an exemplary young man, where are you from? Nazareth? What good can come out of Nazareth, somebody once said. <laughs> Who are your parents? A carpenter? No, no, no chance. Not only that, but then once he grew up and became a rabbi, whereas other rabbi had the uh, Harvard graduating class and the Stanford graduating class and the Wash U graduating class, Jesus had a bunch of losers following him. And prior to Pentecost, the disciples, by and large, were big L losers. You had tax collectors, no one wanted to be around. You had fishermen who stunk and no one wanted to be around. I mean, you had the whole gambit. These guys were knuckleheads extraordinaire. And when other rabbis would look at Jesus and his group of guys, no, definitely not lordship 
material. Or at least not Lord material as we would think about it and consider it in our day or in any day prior. The word here, too, that they use in Greek is in a different word. It's kurios. Now, the word kurios is a Greek word, and the Greeks, they didn't have a divine, uncreated, all-existing God come into them and give them language and give them a word. They had Zeus and they had the other gods, but those were terms created by their people. So they had Lord and God, but they didn't have this Yahweh. And so when the New Testament is written, there's even a distinction in how they translate it to English today to distinguish when Yahweh is inferred. And so the word we get in the Greek is kurios. Now it's a strong word. He to whom a person or thing belongs, the master, the one having disposition of men or property. The owner of the vineyard is one example. The owner of the vineyard, kurios, the person who has this control. In fact, Jesus is called Lord several times. He calls himself Kyrios, Lord at times. A couple examples of this are Lord of the Harvest. When he refers to himself as that, he refers to himself as Lord of the Sabbath. But once again, even as Jesus calls himself Lord and we encounter Lord, this is hard for us to accept. And it's hard for us to accept as good and righteous because of our experience with masters. The clip I began with illustrated this. The Darkness and the evil of slavery has tarnished our view of what it means to have a master, what it means to be slaves. In an earthly setting, slavery is terrible. Having a master is horrible. Being your own master, being your own boss, being the, the, the top of the hill in your own world, that's the objective. We all should be Frank Sinatra, right? No. The reality is that you and I were created to have a master, and we are mastered by something all the time. We're mastered by ourselves. We're mastered by our hobbies. We're mastered by our passions, by our maybe physical substances. We're mastered by how much we care, what people think about us. We have all kinds of mastery in our lives, even as much as in that moment we think, I am the master of my world. I'm in charge. And the reality is, we were never created to serve in that role. And thus, if we don't have the master, we have a sub-master who is evil in some way, having control that God would otherwise wish they didn't have. God knows this. Jesus knows this. Even as much as people call him Lord, he goes, okay, you're here you go using that word again. In Luke 6.46, he encounters someone who calls him Lord, or people are calling him Lord, and he says it right here, Luke 6, 46. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? And this is the essence of Lord. If Lord is master, and if we call somebody Lord, then we should be doing what? What it is they've told us to do. That's just the reality. If we say, Lord Jesus, we are saying, you are master. You are in charge. It means something, and then it means something in application in our own lives. There was this debate, there still is, began in the 80s through a couple different uh, uh, seminaries and schools of theology about 
In order to be a follower of Jesus, in order to be a Christian, do you have, can you be a Christian with Jesus as your Savior and just having believed in him for salvation and forgiveness but not having really surrendered your life to him? Or do you need to surrender your life to him and do you need him to be Lord of your life as well to have that quote-unquote control? Where does salvation begin? And there's a debate back and forth on that. Still is to some day, to some degree, excuse me. In fact, some of us in this room, yours truly included, I battle with this question all the time. It's easy for me to say, Lord, but do I really do what Jesus says? Am I obeying what he's telling me to do in that moment, in that area? Jesus knew. That's why he said it there. In fact, Jesus goes a step further. And these are, these are scary words for us. This is for those of us in in the building, not outside. This is for those of us in the family. Matthew 7, verse 21 through 23. It's the end of the Sermon on the Mount, this great passage that even non-Christians say is one of the greatest writings the world has known. This is what he puts at the end, near the end. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. To just say Lord and not obey as Lord, it's a risky, it's a risky endeavor. Curios is used hundreds of times in the New Testament, gospels, letters, epistles, all that. There's a lot of references. But as we close our time, I want to take us to what I think is maybe the most prominent expression in the New Testament of Lord. Kind of bookend Exodus 3 where we were introduced to Yahweh. Here we get to be reintroduced to Yahweh in Philippians 2, chapter, or chapter 2, verses 5 through 8, just to give you a little background, Paul's describing this amazing thing that God has done and coming and taking on the form of man and being humiliated and being uh, beaten and being crucified, all for out of love and for the sake of saving us and, and uh, in obedience to the Father's command and purpose for him. And he does this and then he rises from the dead to overcome sin and death. And Paul picks up in verse 9 by saying this, Because of all this, therefore, God has highly exalted him, Jesus, and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. That's every human being, every creature, every spiritual power unseen by us at this time. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, is Yahweh. Kyrios is the term used there, but I'm certain it's referring to the, the Yahweh. But not just to the end of Jesus and his exaltation. Remember this person, this triune God that's doing this thing before time began? Jesus, in all of his exaltation, why is he being exalted? To the glory of God the Father. He's giving it away back to the Father. 
We say this beautiful deference between amongst the Godhead and all their power and all their glory. But Jesus as Lord will be exalted. And there's an interesting statement here. It says, everyone will proclaim. They will bend their knee and confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. The most ardent atheist, the most devout Buddhist who doesn't even know who Jesus is, everyone at the end, fill in the blank of who the people are, everyone's going to bow their knee and proclaim that Jesus Christ is not just Savior, Jesus Christ is Lord. He's Yahweh. And so the question this morning is this, is Jesus Lord of your life? I'd say many, most, close to all of us have at some level probably professed faith in Jesus for forgiveness of sins, but have we said, Jesus, you are Lord? I was faced with this question when I was 17 years old. I'd grown up in a Bible teaching church, learned a lot about the Bible. I was four years old when I accepted Jesus in the front seat of my mom's car, driving to, I think, my aunt's house. So I was an early learner, early, you know, I got it early, and I went to church, and I learned it all, and I'm 17 years old. It's May of my senior year. I'm sitting in Mr. Palmatier's physics class during second hour, not paying attention because I had blown off my senior year by then, sorry, um, but God redeemed that year. And I remember sitting there. My dad had just been diagnosed a couple months earlier with this rare blood disease that caused white blood cells to attack his heart, and his heart was weakened by like 75%. And they told him, you only have maybe five to 10 years to live, and he was a perfectly healthy man up to that point, now in his late 40s. And he had to go on disability, and I lost money for college, and it felt like my world was falling apart. And I remember sitting there realizing that I believed, but I didn't trust the Holy Spirit in his grace came to me and said, Jeremy, I'm Lord of all and you need to surrender all. You need to surrender everything. This up and down, in and out, in when you want, out when you don't want relationship with me that we've had since your adolescence isn't going to cut it. And I did. I didn't know what I was praying, but I gave at that moment a 17-year-old could I, and what I meant I meant it, and I said, God, it's yours. It's all yours, the good, the bad, dad, college, everything. It is yours. I surrender it to you. And he has taken my life on a roller coaster I could never have imagined from where I was sitting that day. I haven't always stayed in that completely surrendered position. I pull back, I take back parts, and that's part of this journey is continuing to give those parts back but the question isn't just this is Jesus Lord of your life and maybe that's what God is speaking to you this morning. You need to make him, establish him once and for all. He's not just Savior, he is Lord. But maybe he's not Lord of your whole life. Maybe you're still holding back parts of your life, parts of your heart. God, I'll let you be Lord of my career and my what I want to do, but relationships, ah, I really want to be married, I really want to have this and that, so I'm going to control this part. I'm not going to trust you. Or you are married. And God, I'll trust you with all this, but I don't love my, my, my marriage. We're not really happy right now. And if I were to trust you, that could mean maybe a period of difficulty. And it's just easier just to start over. And there's so many areas in our lives that I could go on and on where we're taking back control. And so this morning, I'm being asked the same question. 
Is Jesus Lord of our life and is he Lord of our whole life? And I want us to think about this as we move into communion. We're going to have a chance here in a moment to take communion. And this is what you'd be thinking. If the Holy Spirit is impressing something on you, if he's revealed something to you, if maybe for the first time you realize, oh my goodness, I believe, but this idea of lordship, I never got it. I never did it. It's just surrendering everything in faith through prayer to God saying, it all belongs to you and I mean it, whatever you want to do. And that can be a scary prayer. But it's so much better than the alternative. Or maybe you've, you've been there, but you've pulled something back. Or you just, you've partially done that. And God's saying, no, I want it all. Jeremy, I want this area of your life, but you've refused to hand over.